So what does it mean for a black South African to enter the academy and to work with knowledge that's been constituted through the colonial enterprise? And what does it mean to do that kind of work in institutions of higher learning that have also been both funded, but also structured systemically and materially by the influence of colonialism? Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonom, and I'm broadcasting from the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, Germany. The guest today for this episode is Dr. Dwayne Jethro. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Edna. Thank you for having me on the show. It's an honor to be speaking to you today. Your book, Heritage Formation and the Census in South Africa, which was published on the 19th of November, Bloomsbury, has come out. Can you tell me about the inception of the book and how the process has shifted from the beginning until publication? The book started out as part of my PhD project, which I kicked off what is now a decade ago. So this is a project that's been a long time in the making. My PhD looked at processes of heritage formation in the post-apartheid dispensation, where a variety of different agents were entering the cultural space to formulate new heritage narratives, but also to construct new heritage sites and commemorative forms. And oftentimes these were directed towards the enterprise of building up the nation. And so departing for my PhD research, I worked with this operant set of questions about how and in what ways does the formation of new heritage correlate with the formation of the post-apartheid nation. My thesis looked at not only the heritage formation and, and the formation of the nation, but also I was interested in materialities and aesthetics. So what was the very substance of these material forms and how and in what ways they actually conveyed the kinds of messages of togetherness that they were supposed to. So I use the analytic of the aesthetics and the senses, which I inherited from Professor Birgit Meyer at the Utrecht University. And I worked in a cohort that was thinking about heritage dynamics through questions of the politics of authenticity and the aesthetics of persuasion. So these were the two analytics I used. So this is the foundation for where the book actually comes from. The book project itself is distinct from the PhD insofar as I have five substantive chapters in my book. Um, These correlate with the five dominant sensory modalities in the Western world. So smell, taste, touch, hearing and sight. And each one deals with a distinctive uh, case study in the South African setting, all dealing with a project that documents a nascent new kind of heritage proposition. So I look at the role of the censors in these practices of staging new heritage projects. And this is a kind of extension from where I developed my PhD. So that sounds very innovative. And I love the way in which you're describing how five senses that might be quite familiar to people in the West can be used to understand heritage, memory, and aesthetics. Can you give us a sense then of how those forms of senses are then used as an appropriate way to grasp the past in the South African context, especially given the unequal society that persists in South Africa post-apartheid? 
That's a fascinating question, and this is a this is a kind of implicit question that I try to address in the book. There are two background points that I need to make here. The first is that the the senses are historical, so they have histories to them. We often take the senses for granted as an embodied mode of experiencing and, and gaining contact with the world. But in scholarship and in the social sciences, we know that senses are constructed and they are historically located in different times and places. So my book is a kind of sensory history of heritage formation in a particular post-apartheid moment. So I'm documenting the shifts and changes in the way the senses are constructed, but also the ways in which they are contested. That's the first assumption that needs to be put out there. And if you work from that assumption, then I'm also contributing, the book also contributes towards a discussion about the significance of black senses and sensibilities. So putting on the table the reality and fact that the sensibilities are significant, but also they are significant in a context like South Africa and that South Africa can contribute towards a broader discussion in the humanities and social sciences about how and in what ways the senses are constructed and contested. So the second assumption that I need to also address in in relation to your question is that the senses, while we assume they are taken for granted, the senses are always in the process of formation and changing. So your senses can be sharpened and heightened, they can be dull, but fundamentally these processes of shaping the senses are controlled by or dominated by culture. So the senses are culturally constructed and they're also contested. So I use this, these properties, these analytical properties of the senses as an analytic in my book to interrogate the contestations that take place in South African society between different groups who are privileged and unprivileged. Looking at the narratives that they were able to deploy to contest not only how the past should be apprehended through the senses, but also to contest exactly what sensory terms in which we can legitimately or otherwise have an apprehension and what kinds of apprehensions of the past we can actually access. So the five chapters correlated according to these Western sensibilities all hint at the potentiality of sensory, of different sensory modalities for gaining one type of access to a contested post-apartheid past. So you were born in South Africa, and specifically Cape Town. Were you born before or after apartheid? And depending on the answer, how would you have been identified or classified um, under the apartheid regime? So I was born in 1983. The 1980s were a very volatile time in South Africa with the mass democratic movement and the wide-scale protests, like the mass movement of protests against the apartheid state. My generation is perhaps the last who can remember structural apartheid. I think my memories are very vague of being discriminated against actively as a, as a person of color. The racial hierarchies in South Africa are both pretty straightforward and pretty complex. On the one hand, we have hierarchy of a chromatocracy with whites, blacks, and then colored folk. Not at the bottom, but uh, in the middle of this ranking scale of white, black, and colored. And this notion of colored identity 
is really complex and it could be the topic of a podcast series on its own insofar as colored identities is also a historically constructed cultural identity that has been racialized but also contested throughout the 20th and going into the 19th century with various historical genealogies that speak to indigenous identity in South Africa, the arrival of diasporic slave groups from Southeast Asia, as well as really problematic and complicated stories of miscegenation between settler colonial communities and and indigenous communities at the Cape. So identifiers as being coloured, which also marks me out as black. And these terms are also have a different kind of resonance in South Africa. So we have questions of political blackness versus phenotypical blackness. And in many ways, this coloredness creates a sense of in-betweenness that, well, personally, I feel comfortable with that, with that sense of in-betweenness, although I identify as black. Given that the hierarchies and complexities and nuances of identity in the South African context post-apartheid, what does it mean or what power do you have being able to do this research, given that so many groups of color and as well as black folk were disenfranchised from having access to knowledge production and, and power in this way? That's a wonderful question. I mean, we're sitting here in Dalem. It's a beautiful autumn day outside there. And if the system, the apartheid system, had worked the way it was supposed to work, I would not be sitting here. I'm a graduate of a high-ranking university in Europe. The privileges that were accorded to me due to a number of circumstances, economic circumstances, under a situation of dramatic political change, yes, yeah, set me up in a way that allowed me to actually get to this place where I am in Berlin. So... To illustrate some of what I'm getting at is that during the change in the early 1990s, during the transition, one of the significant moments in, in my life was, of course, my mother choosing to send me to what was called a formerly model C school, school for white kids. And arriving at the school, there were 20 kids, all these 10-year-olds in the classroom, and we were four black kids, two colored kids, one Indian guy and one, and one black kid. And slowly, as the years went on, things started changing. But it was also a very trepidatious move for my mother to actually put me into the school. So this educational history put me on a kind of trajectory for gaining a a higher education, for gaining the skills to prepare me for university. But also other unmarked things, things like access to books and libraries. Yeah, my mom stimulated an interest in reading, so I enjoyed reading as a child. But in, our, in, in the community where I grew up, or the area that I grew up, Lotus River and Grossy Park in Cape Town, there's one library in each one of these, but they're not very well stocked. The school that I attended, my very first school, my, was, was Buck Road Primary School. I mean, there was no library at that, at that school. So y- you can see the, the disparities in, in resource schools and under-resource schools and the kinds of choices that folks of color had to make at a time when they were really confused. And these kinds of choices contributed towards me being skilled enough to be able to harness opportunities, firstly recognize, and then secondly harness the... Because oftentimes folks of color, don't, they, aren't, they don't have the sensibility to be able to recognize that here is a, a possibility for making a certain set of choices. 
And that's contributed towards how I actually ended up here. It's still very striking for me and, and I feel uncomfortable with being positioned as a expert, although I embrace that subject position on one hand as someone who has to go back and bring some of my knowledge, skills and networks back to South Africa, while at the same time also embracing that, well, you know, I come from a certain place and many of the circumstances that would have held me back are still in place in in that particular place. So, yeah, I hold on to where I came from while also respecting the education that I've, I've had the privilege of receiving and yeah. Thank you for describing the significance of personal identity, racial categories, class, and particularly political transformation and shaping who has access to education, especially in the post-apartheid South African moment. I want to turn to the third chapter of your book, where you describe in the title of the chapter as Fragrances and Force Removal, Memory, Small and Urban Displacement in Cape Town. In that chapter, you begin with a personal antidote and you describe your experiences of relocating to Berlin in 2017 and the act of putting up black and white posters of mid-20th century scene from your home of Cape Town. Can you describe the context of why you did this and what function this played for linking Cape Town and Berlin? Yeah, the chapter is actually one of the more innovative approaches to the senses and heritage because there isn't much work on the sense of smell and cultural histories of the sense of smell. That poster, that is a true story that I, I, I put that poster up and it was very evocative of the aromas of home, of the smell of protea flowers, of sunflowers, of roses that you find being sold at the Adderley Street flower market. But there's a dynamic there. Of course, it's a, it's a two-dimensional image that I put up on the wall. It does not carry smells. But in the chapter, I use that sense of nostalgia, the evocation of nostalgia, as a prompt to open up a discussion about relationships between nostalgia, the sense of smell, being out of home, being away from home, and how the sense of smell can re-emplace you back home, can return you to your home. So that chapter deals with the forced removal of the community of District 6, but also other forcefully removed communities in the city of Cape Town, because it's really important to emphasize that The removal of District 6 was only one of the biggest and well-known examples, but there were other smaller communities in other parts of Cape Town that were also forcefully removed. The narratives thread together, but it's important to recall this distinction. And in the chapter, I recover the sensory modalities that percolate in the area of District 6 while it was still there up until the 1960s. And then I also unpack the kinds of olfactory resonances, the smells that waft into the memories of former residents. And and I track these references to smell according to the history of the life before, during the force removal, and life after force removal. I wanted to focus on smells and memories of food and flowers, so that's another reason why the poster was so significant. 
And there I reference a, a very fascinating and quite exciting project, the Cape Town Floriography Project run by a scholar named Melanie Bowie. She pulled out archival photographs and she produced flower wrapping paper that flower sellers could use and distribute. I think it was on Heritage Day in 2016, the 24th of September. The poster was from this particular heritage project. So there were all kinds of resonances that I pulled out from this to, to tell the story of this particular chapter of forced removal, of how smell can take you back to places, but also how smells are located in place, but also transcend place. It was an exciting and, and fun chapter to write. I really enjoyed writing that. Thank you so much for talking about nostalgia, heritage, and specifically how memory is not just an abstract phenomenon that can exist in the ether, but it's an active site, a very sensory embodied experience that you can move through a place, a city, uh, multiple countries, and construct different narratives about what memory can be. Now I want to turn towards blackness and particularly black not just as a political category, but something that you encounter or talk about a bit of black aesthetics and black subjectivities. So you try to recover black subjectivities and aesthetics. And I like to recall the works of like Fred Moten, who has been coming to Berlin and speaking about the black diasporic experiences, black aesthetics, black music, black humanities. What does it mean for you to accord sensibilities in your writing towards black people? What kinds of sensibilities are they enabled to participate? And what's at stake for using cultural histories of black subalterns to rehumanize the black experience and the black enterprise? Yeah, so this this is a fundamental question, and I think the book contributes in some ways to this discussion of the recovery of, of black subjectivities in the South African context in particular. One of the authors that I used to build my argument on is a journalist and historian named uh, Jacob Lamini, and he wrote a fascinating book. In fact, in some ways, his book is a kind of precursor a different kind of precursor to my book. It's called Native Nostalgia. And in Native Nostalgia, Jacob also mobilizes the the five senses, but hones in on the township of Katlehong, where he grew up, using the five senses as a modality for interrogating a very difficult question about... The question he poses in that book is, how can I remember my childhood with fondness when I grew up under apartheid? Like, what does that mean? And in his book, he makes the argument, well, that by focusing on the senses, we are humanizing black subjects in history. And in that sense, we break away from the smoothing over that happens when we cling to historical grand narratives. Like, for example, this liberation narrative that, that says... The struggle was between blacks and whites, and there were heroes and villains. So he says, through focusing on the senses, we get to the nuance of black life at that time, the ways in which people move through the world, which is very human, and as you, you say this, right? To touch things, to smell things, to they speak to the very human experience of moving through time. And also by mobilizing the senses in this way, we get a more complex picture of what society was like. Uh, in particular moments. And we also take very seriously the experiences of subjects who do not often and are not often accorded the state of being able to enter the scholarly archival record. Voices and experiences 
of ordinary folk who do not necessarily get to move through and stake their stories in the annals of scholarship. So that's where the strength of cultural histories lies in being able to pull up some of these voices, to resensitize us to cultural worlds and, and spaces of blackness. And in that sense, my book contributes towards a resensitizing of cultural history in South Africa, putting on the table that the sensory life of Black South Africans in particular, under some circumstances, are valid and meaningful spaces for interrogating and observing where the past is actually being contested. Directly, I, I, I address this in chapter 3, the chapter on, on forced removal, because that chapter is all about the reasons why the community of District 6 was forcefully removed. So the state mobilized a set of arguments about this area being a slum, these arguments were percolating with all kinds of sensory references to District 6 as being smelly, filthy, dirty. So this, it, it wasn't just a, a rhetoric, it was also a discourse that didn't just attach to the area, but it also attached to the people. So by default, these people were classified as, as being smelly, dirty, etc. And I show in the chapter that while it was true that District 6 was a, was a rundown area, other forceful areas that were forcefully removed were, were rundown. This was a systemic problem due to the lack of investment in these particular areas. And the residents of these areas recognized this in their biographies. But there were other kinds of sensory worlds that were in operation. And I show examples of experiences of the cinema that was really evocative, experiences of public life in, in District 6, of going down the main street and moving through walkers and people remembering the smell of uh, spices and foods. Smell memories are very evocative for some of the subjects that I cite in that particular chapter. The recovery of... Black subjectivities is a sub-theme that runs across the book, insofar as it highlights that the census is one of these spaces of contestation in the post-apartheid dispensation. Thank you. So you brought up the problem of the archive in some ways and who has access to archival spaces. And earlier we spoke about the privileges that one has when one has access to universities and how that is somewhat racialized and class-based. So I want to ask, what role do you think that the history of colonialism, and particularly European colonialism, has had in shaping who's considered an object of study versus a knowledgeable subject who can engage in research and studies, especially today? Ouch, that's a, that's a super heavy question for, for, for Tuesday morning. So Foucault has this amazing quote, right? He says, the archive is the general system of the formation and transformation of statements. I ponder upon that, that quote of, of his for, formulation of the archive. And then you look at Achille Mbembe, he makes this proposition that the archive is a particular space that constitutes the generation or accords the archival status on the material that is actually accumulated there. And he also tells a story about how the, that material that is accumulated in the archive has it's dangerous material. It remains that need to be managed very carefully. Colonialism works in the same way, in both that it structures a set of terms in which we can think, say and do. Colonialism works in different ways in different places. So the South African 
colonial experience goes back 350 years. And it's very palpable in ordinary everyday life the traces of the colonial past prevalent throughout the city of Cape Town in particular, but other cities as well, but particularly in Cape Town because we were first colonized by the Dutch. So the street layout is the original street layout of the Dutch. We have the castle in the city, also the Dutch castle. And then we were colonized by the British. So our experience of colonialism, and particularly in Cape Town, has shaped the ways in which people have access to education in South Africa, and what kind of education you can actually receive, and also how we think about liberation in the post-apartheid dispensation. I can't think of a direct example. Can you repeat your question again, Anna? Who is considered an object of study, and who is considered a knowledgeable subject to conduct studies? So this, this question precisely relates to the kinds of debates that the student movements, the Rosemus Four movement, actually picked up in 2015. So what does it mean for a black South African to enter the academy and to work with knowledge that's been constituted through the colonial enterprise? And what does it mean to do that kind of work in institutions of higher learning that have also been both funded, but also structured systemically and materially by the influence of colonialism. So my reading of the, the Rose Must Fall movement and the decolonizing project that was initiated at that particular time is very much about concerning the troubling of this relationship precisely between who has the privilege to produce knowledge and who has the privilege to be the subject of analysis and breaking that relationship down through the radical interrogation of what an institution of higher learning actually is and what it is in South Africa. So I have a final question. Given that we're based here in Germany and there is a constant renegotiation of how people are dealing with Germany's colonial past, its history, its ethnographic collections, artifacts that were stolen from the African continent, and how museum spaces operate, what are the different ways that scientists, scholars, and everyday people are thinking about the post-colonial context in Germany? And do you see decolonial measures that are being put into action that resonate with a radical future, a utopic society of sorts, or even just repair for the damages that have been done in the past? So as I arrived in, in Berlin as a Alexander von Humboldt stipendiat, and I'm currently located in the Institute for European Ethnology. So my scholarly situation is really out of key with the ways in which scholars are meant to circulate and how they are actually emplaced in certain institutions of higher learning. So I'm a South African working in an institution that analyzes Europe. It's usually the other way around, Europeans coming to South Africa to study our subjects. I kind of like that awkward situation. It also enables me to observe within the academy the kinds of systems that operate to sustain the project of knowledge production, but also to observe very acutely and, and very closely the ways in which very entrenched systems of management and knowledge production actually work in the German academy. 
So one of the interesting facets of, of the U Institute of European Ethnology is that it's situated on the Emstrasse, which is a very derogatory word, and it's a racist term that really casts an interesting, okay, interesting is not the word, a very dark shadow on both our institute that does research on questions of race, identity, and belonging, but also the Department of, the Federal Department of Justice, which is also situated on the same street. I often think to myself, not just what does it mean for us to think about these anthropological questions working on the Emstrasse, but also what does it mean for a Federal Department of Justice to issue letters with a racist name on the street to sometimes uh, foreign delegations also. However, there's been a strong movement to uh, change not only that street name, but other street names in the city. And there have been activist groups who have been working for decades, almost three decades, for transformation of problematic street names, sites, and places in the city of Berlin. Berlin Postcolonial, the Institute for Schwarzemense Deutschland, IOTO is another organization that's also been doing wonderful, wonderful work, among many other black activist groups in the city of Berlin. So if anybody can claim this word decolonization, then I think these organizations have the right to be able to mobilize this particular language for projects of change that are directed towards getting recognition for the right of Germans with an African background to also stake a claim to a different kind of Germanness and a different sense of belonging. So the changing of problematic street names that are associated with the German colonial past, but also in the Afrikaanische Svitel in particular, but also the Emstrasse where in the city center is fundamentally about making a claim about the problematicness of these names, but also being able to stake a different kind of history in public space. We also need to recognize that there is a long history of black intellectual participation in Germany that has gone unmarked. Anton Willem Amo, for example, a black philosopher who worked at the University of Halle, has, for example, been forgotten in the annals of German scholarship, which is lauded all over the world. His name has been put forward as a, as a possible contender for a new name for the Emstrasse. And there are many, many other uh, examples, especially from the, the late 19th and early 20th centuries of black intellectuals who have worked in the city, and uh, a kind of domestic culture of black intellectual work that also needs recognition. So if we're thinking about decolonization in Berlin, then we need to recognize this unmarked black intellectual tradition in the city and also the work that activist groups have, have been doing to transform problematic spaces, names and sites in the city. Thank you so much for this insightful conversation and for joining me today. Thank you so much, Edna. You're listening to Decolonization in Action podcasts, and this episode was hosted by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, Germany. To learn more about the podcast or to find more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. 
If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. We want to continue to express our gratitude for our guests and those who continue to promote the podcast. Thank you for joining us.